Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman Perks, and welcome back to my favorite time of the week. And I'm very lucky to have Tracy Groves with me. And Tracy is the CEO of Intelligent Ethics, and a brilliant lady who works with a whole variety of organizations, sorting out the bad guys and behaving well. Uh, background in PwC, music at Durham, a whole variety of fascinating things, including being a territorial army officer in the Royal Artillery. Tracy, it's great having you on board. Thank you very much. And, uh, and also it was Roger Steer who recommended you, uh, who we, is a mutual friend of us both. Um, we were talking earlier about um, inspiring teams. Uh, uh, any situation you've been in where you've been with a great team, because we talk about inspiring leaders, but getting a great team when it just everything comes together well. You had one story. Tell us that story of a very good team. Yeah, it's, it's a brilliant recollection to, to go through, actually, Jonathan, because it reminded me of my time that I spent in Germany. Mm. So I was a director at PwC at the time, and we were leading a remediation program um, to support an investigation on bribery and corruption for a global conglomerate. And we thought we would be there for six weeks. So we got on the aeroplane thinking with, that we would support and help to establish a remediation programme to help the organisation respond to the US investigation that took place. We were there for two years. Two years. <laughs> Flying out on a Monday morning from London or other parts of the UK over to Germany. And when we got to Germany, to the campus of the client site, there were other PwC colleagues there from France, from the US, from Switzerland, from Germany, obviously, and us here from the UK. And I took it upon myself to think, actually, if we're going to be here for the long term, what are we going to do to create a sense of belonging and purpose? Because mm. it's not much fun being stuck in a hotel four nights a week, every single week, every month, mm. effectively, mm. for a long period of time. So what we did, and I used the team to help me create this, was set up a whole community. We had a book club, we had a running club, we went to the opera, uh, we did loads of things. We did, um, we uh, all signed up for the Stuttgart Marathon, um, and it was just a set, it didn't feel like work in that way. So mm. yes, during the day we worked hard, but then we also played hard in a really fun, collaborative way. Brilliant. And I have very fond memories of that time now. Well, that's great. We, we do need better teams. There's a lot of dysfunctional and toxic teams, which we can talk about in part two. And what about inspiring leaders? Who is the character you'd pick and what qualities did he or she have? Instinctively, when I thought about this question, Mo Molum came to okay, my mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I have never got to meet her personally, but I've read a lot about her and obviously observed and watched her on, on the screen. And when I read her book, Momentum in particular, it really struck me because her personality just shines through. Yeah. And she talks about her role uh, in the peace negotiation process um, and ultimately ending up with the Good Friday Agreement as she yeah. did in 1998. And her charisma was phenomenal. Mm. Her bluntness at the same time, this paradox of being able to get what she wanted but doing it in a way which was so authentic, I find really compelling. Yeah. Yeah, she, she, she was amazing. And didn't she have cancer and had to she have a brain tumour. Brain tumour. Yeah, so she would quite often walk into cabinet meetings, kick off her shoes, take off her wig, put it on the table and get down to business. Wow. Extremely intelligent, very determined, 
um, and never took herself too seriously, mm. but was really good at what she did. You know, yeah. the complexity and really the impossibility of what she was facing in, in Northern Ireland as Secretary of State was phenomenal. No, amazing. And there was another um, a politician that I, I got to know in some work I was doing at Windsor Castle, and uh, she sadly has died of cancer. But what she said, which always stuck with me, she said, Jonathan, always be where you're irreplaceable. So in other mm. words, if there's a, uh, something your children are doing, which is a play, and they need mum or dad there, you've got to be there. And, and you know, no one else can go in your place. And I think that's really important, particularly as she knew she was, she was dying. Mm. As she said, always be where you're irreplaceable. Yeah. And that's, that's always stuck with me. Um, so from the inspiring teams to inspiring individuals to um, you know, ourselves as, as frail and uh, very human people with mm. feet of clay that we make mistakes, what, was, what have you learned the most from when you've got it wrong in the past with certain leadership traits that you had which were not helpful? And, and how has that changed how you are now, Tracy? Mm. Yeah, when I reflected on when I've got it wrong, and there are quite a few occasions I can admit to, um, it's actually been my ability to use my energy smartly oh, um, yeah. and with intelligence. Uh, I'm a very natural, vivacious person, as you probably can tell, Jonathan, um, and it's it's very personal to me. It's not a show, it's who I am. I'm like a blue bottle against the window, banging up, you know, just, you know, my husband says to me, Tracy, just go for a run, for goodness sake, do something. Um, and I was very judgmental in those who didn't match my levels of energy mm. and enthusiasm for life and for work. So therefore, if you were somebody who was more reserved, more reflective, uh, more thinking uh, internally rather than externally, I took that to be a flaw. Yeah. Um, so it was a real learning for me to reflect and respect what it takes to be a good leader where not everyone is like you. And mm. there is a absolute value, thank goodness everybody is not like me because the world would be a very loud, noisy place. And actually we probably would get nothing done mm. <laughs> because we'd be so busy bouncing off either, each other yeah. and gaining our energy in that way. So for me, it was learning to dial it down yeah. um, in the moment when knowing actually it would be undermining my ability to influence and to lead. Mm. And you bring out a very good point because um, inspiring leaders come in many shapes and sizes and, and funny enough a, a lot of them are introverts mm. and and need their reflective time and their quiet moments and then they put on they put on the the brave face the armor they go out and they they perhaps speak when they're in fact it, their toes are scrawling up inside their shoes and they're feeling uh, very nervous and, and it is interesting talking to people whether it be even Ant Middleton, the fear he had when he was going in mm. to, to um, take out terrorists in Afghanistan, the thing, so that the fear he had inside him that you wouldn't know with people. So I think uh, I do relate to what you're saying is that in my drive to try and be a better leader, I think I've often been um, judgmental about others. And I think two things I take from both the Stoics and the sort of Buddhist approach um, it is this this one about non-attachment and non-judgment non-attachment to things and possessions and being seen as a person or an identity I am this person this this role but the other one of, of non-judgment and it's it's always work in progress <laughs> isn't it don't you find it always and I actually just to go back to your point around the but you know some of the the beliefs and systems here I actually go back to the saying of the Zen master yeah. which is actually a beginner's mindset is full of possibilities Yes. Whereas an expert's leader's mindset has very few. Yeah. 
Um, and actually, for me, to free myself from the default position, which I mm. often find through my own sheer force of personality, means that actually it's possible to achieve anything and everything with anyone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and to hold back that judgment. But I love this beginner's mindset. Yeah, and beginner's actually, yeah, yeah. I, I think leadership today is actually about unlearning quite yes. a lot of stuff. <laughs> you are spot on. And time yeah. again, time again, we were talking earlier about um, Nick Borwell's comment yes, from the civil service right. that yep. you know the incomplete leader with the complete team. Yep. And, and that we are always work in progress. Mm. And, and yeah, beginner's mind. And what is it we need to unlearn before yep. we can relearn? So finally, um, what would be your favorite top tip for, for leaders who are listening? My favorite top tips, I've got a lot, but my absolute top one is one that my father brought me up on. And is it runs through my veins and I hear myself saying it all the time, which is there is no such word as can't. Mm. Never give up. Even if you can't do it this way, try again, try a different way, talk to somebody else, connect, challenge, be curious, but never give up and there is no such word as can't. I, I like that. And I wonder perhaps if that was why you also in your spare time were a territorial army officer in the, uh, in the Royal Artillery. What, what, if you were to add one more tip from okay. your time, <laughs> one more tip from your time in, in, the, in the army, what would, what would your tip be from there? Keep curious. Keep curious. Say a bit more. Yeah, keep curious. Uh, I was a musician. I was a clarinetist. You know, uh, I went to an all-girls boarding school. Yes, I was brought up in a military family, but I had absolutely no inclination to go into the armed forces. But uh, music wasn't enough to keep me occupied at Durham University. You know, there wasn't enough orchestra rehearsals, choir rehearsals, and that energy needed to get out there. So I was curious, and I just thought, you know what? Where else am I going to learn how to parachute? How to fire a gun, how to be a leader, how to drive <laughs> as a student. Well, it was yeah, brilliant. so compelling. Well, Tracy, thank you. Fantastic having you on the series. Yeah, thank and you very good much. Good luck with intelligence, uh, ethics, and all the work you do. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman Perks, and welcome back to Inspiring Leadership Extra. Uh, and Tracy Groves, the CEO of Intelligent Ethics, and I are chatting. Tracy, um, you had one hell of a story to tell of um, a dark part of your life, uh, but the learning that came from it and the coincidences that happened. So how about telling us about the story about when you and your husband were walking? Yes, yeah, so it was a bright, sunny morning, mm -hmm. the 28th of April, 2012. We had arrived the day before in the Lake District um, to do a whole week's work, uh, walk of fell walking. Yeah. And uh, we set off on the Saturday morning um, looking to do the Dale Head Summit, um, 850 something feet high. Um, and we were really excited about doing the horseshoe and it was gonna be a whole day's walking and climbing and very excited about it. We'd been walking for about four hours, steadily climbing and going higher. And I turned around and as, I, as Stephen, my husband was coming over the false summit behind me, um, he was on all fours. And I was joking with him saying, oh, come on, it was not that bad. You know, you can't be that shattered already. Got a long way to go yet. And as I said that, he was catapulted up into the air. So literally all his four limbs removed from the ground and he was flipped over and turned onto his back. Um, I didn't know this at the time, but that was the electrical shock going through his body as his heart stopped. And that literally threw him up in the air. And threw him up in the air. And this is a very common thing. It's, it's when you see people being brought back to life using a defibrillator, the electric shock jumps their body. Wow. What happened to him was his heart stopped, went into ventricular fibrillation, VF as they call it. And this happened to the footballer similar and time. And this what happened was, what, what to was the, uh, the Brees Maramba. 
Fabrice, yeah. uh, and uh, he died, and Fabrice. No, he was brought back to the problem they had with him. So six weeks previously, footballer on the pitch, had a cardiac arrest, very similar heart condition to my husband, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, went into electrical shock. Um, they got a defibrillator on him straight away, but his heart would not restart. Um, so he was on the pitch for 20 minutes while they was trying to restart his heart. Oh, but he lived. But he did, they did live. And now he does a lot of campaigning for, on, and now you see a lot more defibrillators being on the side of pitches, in schools, in libraries, in supermarkets. Uh, and is schools. it triggered when you're doing something very physical? Um, it's triggered, it's genetically uh, a disease which is inherited predominantly by men, but it can yeah. ap appear in women. Um, very fit athletes are known to have it. They don't know an awful lot about it. One of the things which uh, the cardiologists um, and the professors of this condition were delighted that my husband survived this was that um, they could use him for research because okay. nobody survives an oh, out-of-hospital right. cardiac arrest, but Stephen did. Wow. wow. <laughs> so... He's lying on his back. What's going through your mind? I mean, what's going through my mind is he's having an epileptic fit. Actually, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd seen a lot of epileptic uh, fits at the back of four-ton trucks during my time as a TA army officer. Mm -hmm. So my first day training from those days kicked in instinctively, and I um, put him into recovery position, cleared his airway, and held his head, thinking he was having some kind of fit. Mm. After what felt like a long time, but I'm sure was only seconds, I recognised that he wasn't breathing at all. His pulse had gone, um, his eyes were rolling back, and he, he wasn't having an epileptic fit. Some form of heart event was happening in my mind. I thought heart attack. I didn't then know the difference between that and a cardiac arrest. Um, so I put him back onto his back um, and started mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation and CPR whilst shouting for help on a footpath, as I say, on this Saturday morning. That, Beautiful. I, can, I can see yeah. Your, yeah. your whole body is reacting to this as you remember it, aren't you? Uh, I, I'm a, there. Um, and actually... It was traumatic, wasn't it? It was absolutely, in my mind, I, I, I was trying to breathe for me as well as for him. Mm. Um, and, not, and being on my own, so high up, um, was very isolating. Yeah. Um, I can see I was that. trying to get my phone out and trying to get a signal. Nothing... I couldn't get a signal at all to call for help um, and so I just continued to do what I could do and in the process of doing so four nurses heard me. Oh, the coincidence <laughs> of four nurses being on the summit of a, one, of the, one of these peaks is just they know, had, a thousand to one. They had stopped halfway up the, the Dalehead slog because they were exhausted with their other halves and they were having a coffee. And one of their husbands heard me yelping. Uh, I thought I was screaming for help, but actually it was more like a you know, strangled you know, yelp. And um, they actually rushed over and I said to them, and we did know about Stephen's heart condition. Um, he'd been classified as minimum risk, very fit, no cholesterol, didn't smoke, doesn't drink very much. So we were just keeping a watchful eye and, and there was no heart, uh, so no history in his heart mm, uh, mm. Of, of this because it's also called sudden death syndrome. That's the yeah. other layman's term for this heart condition. Because he, he to all intents and purposes, died. Had died. So between us, we took turns to do mouth-to-mouth -mouth and um, CPR because it's actually really exhausting. Mm. Um, putting your physical weight on someone's chest for that period of time and trying to breathe for them as well. After 20 minutes, the senior nurse said to me, I think we should stop. Um, there is no reaction, there's no pulse, there is nothing coming in and out of Stephen's lungs apart from what we are putting in and what you are pushing out. Um, and at that point in time, um, I grabbed her collar of her shirt, I ripped it as I sank to my knees and I said, we don't stop. Hmm. 
And she said, okay, five more minutes. Um, we'll keep going, but after that, it's the right thing for us to do. Um, and as she said that, two young gentlemen came round the corner on this public footpath, um, and they were terribly polite, <laughs> and they said, never so sorry, is there anything we can do to help? We have a GPS satellite phone here. Wow. <laughs> Oh dear, sorry, you, um, you've just at which, case, at which point in time, um, yeah, they got a signal, they called for help. Within 20 minutes later, um, of which we were still doing the mouth-to-mouth and the CPR to get what we could into Stephen's brain and his vital uh, organs, we had an RAF seeking who had been diverted from doing a, a, a sortie, an exercise in the next door valley. We had an air ambulance, a helicopter, and we had three mountain rescue teams all volunteers who were on the scene. Wow, that's amazing. And he went on to live, didn't he? Stephen went on to live. Um, he was airlifted to um, Whitehaven Hospital on the northwest Cumbrian coast. Yeah. I got there two hours later. That's how long it took me to uh, run down to Honister Pass, um, be driven in a volunteer's car to the hospital, um, at which point they said to me, we've put him in an induced coma. Uh, we'll see what happens, six minute obs we don't think he will wake up. And they froze his body for me um, with a view to reducing the trauma on the brain because Mm. of the lack of oxygen. Uh, And you say that that he has had some brain damage because of this and time that he was was not um, breathing himself. Um, What's been your learning since then and how have you both coped? Because he's also a musician like you, isn't he? Yeah. And, And just to pick up on what you say there, Jonathan, my learning, how I've coped, I'm still coping. Mm. You know, this happened um, eight years ago, which next month. Not, which is not long. Um, and in fact, three weeks ago, we just went to the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford and Stephen had a new battery fitted in his internal defibrillator. That's amazing. Um, because he had an implantable defibrillator put in his chest two weeks after the event. Um, he had pneumonia and things, complications afterwards. We had to wait a while. Um, and this defibrillator that he's just had replaced, the one had never been used. He's never happened again since, but the battery had gone low and he was starting to beep. <laughs> So technology being the most amazing life-giving thing that it can be, Stephen now has his own personal defibrillator inside his chest if he ever were to go into cardiac arrest again, and I'm not there this time, (laughs) it it will bring him back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And just three weeks ago, I had to relive what happened on the 28th of April. Because I had to say goodbye to him as he went into surgery to have the old box taken out and the new box taken in. That must have been traumatic. And it was hard. Yeah. And you were honest enough to talk about the fact that both he and you have suffered from PTSD since then. And how how do you cope when it comes upon you like a sort of black wave? What do you do? Um, We were close before this happened. We Mm. met at university, both reading music. Stephen's a violinist, a musicologist, Um, but this has brought us even closer. I think the challenging thing that I found was immediately after the event was the loneliness. Yeah, Um, because there's just the two of you. It's just the two of us and Stephen's um, cognitive ability to empathise, to have any care, any compassion, any kindness went for the first six months after the event. Oh, it's come back? It has come back. Oh, goodness. Yeah. But for the first six months, I did not... And, but he was able to function. Um, so we were going through, but, obviously, loads of tests and everything else, but he couldn't respond to me in any emotional way whatsoever. Uh, and there's sort of the rather dark humour side of me goes, 
Well, that's very good training for intelligent ethics when you're working with CEOs because they don't have that. <laughs> and that's very bad humor, I'm sorry. But, but yeah. thank good. And, and I saw that actually happen with my mother when she had a stroke. It took out half her brain. And my brother, the surgeon, looked at the scans and he just said, all this side is gone. And she lost that ability to laugh, to empathize. She was just cold, yeah. um, which was not her at all. Yeah. And yeah. it never, sadly, really came back before yeah. she died. Yeah. Um, so yes, I, I really yeah. relate to that. So let's go from, thank you for sharing such a deeply personal story. Let's go from that to the kind of work you do with intelligent ethics, because we're in the world of work and I see time and again, toxic teams, toxic individuals. Um, we've got um, 23 years he's gone down for, what's the guy's name? Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein's yeah, yeah. gone down for that the abuse of power and you mm. were telling me it's, it's, it's often it's about power men and women who misuse their positions we were talking about professional services firms and other businesses we're in where people get bullied um, and we have compromise agreements where they're pushed out of the organization and um, th there's some really toxic behaviors which should be whistleblown and called about and it's still going on in a big way you're never going to be out of work are you <laughs> For all the wrong reasons. I no. mean, um, I would love to be able to say to you, do you know what, there's, there's nothing for me to do out there, yeah. working with organisations who are really in a state of anxiety in yeah. terms of they, they know it's an issue, but what to do about it. There's a state of paralysis um, because effectively they see this ability to operate in a coherent way where there is care, there is compassion, there is purpose behind what they do and the ability to make money. Yeah. And it's this constant conflict and tension between profit and purpose, yes. which ultimately creates this sense of anxiety and, and uh, distress, real yeah. organisational distress, which ultimately, at the end of the day, is a human effect. Yeah. Uh, this is such a fascinating area. This, um, uh, I was reading something about, um, I forgot what the term is these days, but it, it's it's uh, capitalism that's more focused on stakeholders rather than shareholders that you've got to think about all the different players in it and that sense of purpose and making a difference and not being a greedy bunch of capitalists who are just uh, trying to maximize shareholder value at all costs because time and again people people get very myopic and they forget um, about being human and you know uh, humility and humanity and uh, as Roger talked about love uh, that sort of strange human things that people leave at home <laughs> they don't bring to work mm. I don't mean about having affairs or relationships which also um, do go on but I mean about caring for the people you mm. lead and you saw that in your time with the TA and I certainly saw it in my 20 years in the military that that good leaders really love in a, in a healthy way and care for those they lead and would die for them if necessary. You don't see that on many businesses and you see people who happily hack to death, metaphorically, people who don't serve their purposes anymore mm -hmm. and aren't gonna make money for them. Uh, what's, what's been some of the lessons you've had that you could share with people now of where you've gone into organizations and you've helped identify and then turn around some really toxic individuals and behaviours. Mm. I think there, there is no magic silver bullet. No. Can I just say that, Jonathan? Just as if anyone's listening, thinking, oh, Tracy's going to say something. If I just do that, everything will be fine. There is no one single It's a bullet. whole system, isn't it? It's a whole ecosystem that we need to create in a consistent way. So not just in the good times, but also, and if not more importantly, 
in the not so good times as well. And actually the climate we live in where predictable surprises are coming around every corner, the uncertainty, uh, the wicked problems that we're facing. Go back to that second. Yes, that was oh, yes. Yeah. You, you said yeah. predictable surprises. Yes. Yeah. It's like um, when I was with the Scots Guards and they just come back yeah. from the Falklands, the commanding officer, Mike Scott, said to us, and uh, Ian Mackay Dick, who was his replacement, we need to prepare for the unexpected. And I remember thinking, that's the most bizarre thing but what they meant was yeah. they were on public duty minding their own business and then three weeks later they were in Senebridge and a week later they were on the ship sailing to the South Atlantic they never saw that coming and they weren't properly prepared and as a result more people died than should have died because had they been better prepared for the unexpected they would yep. have but how can you prepare for something that's unexpected, but you can scenario plan. Go back to that yeah. double phrase. What was your phrase? Predictable surprises. Predictable surprises. Yeah. Is that? Tell me more about that. So we are living in a world where we have all this technology, all the modelling, all the systems that is able to forecast exactly what's going to happen in the future. Yet we know less what's going to happen in the future than ever before. Mm. <laughs> the consequences of us living in this global networked world means that we actually have even less of an idea then what is going to happen? So, so, so predictable surprises, it's a surprise which you think you should be able to predict. Is that what we're it's, saying? It's a surprise which you cannot predict, but oh, right. you can prepare for. So we know there is a surprise around oh, the yeah. corner. So yes. there, there will always there prepare will always, for the unexpected. Exactly. It's there the same, always, same, yeah. same thing. In, and, and, and I've put it in the business context, which is, it's our response as leaders that we need to be concerning ourselves about. So how are we preparing for it so that whatever it is that's around the corner, because we have no idea what that surprise or that unexpected event is going to be. This is actually, uh, yep. um, as we discussed earlier, um, very stoic. Yep. Uh, and you know, Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, Seneca have been great um, models to me as I've struggled through many difficulties in my life and challenges. This, this idea that, that you can't control the events, but you can control, not control, you can manage your response to them. So it's not the fact that things go wrong for you. They will, yep. but it's how you cope with them. And there's you up on a yep. mountain yep. with your husband dying and uh, bringing him, helping bring him back to life. So it was how you responded to it that helps. So, so talk to me more about the kind of things that, that are going on, which, which people should be aware of and should watch out for. What, yeah. what are the sort of the danger signs of some toxic teams or individuals doing some bad, bad stuff. So you mentioned, Jonathan, abuse of power, mm. which is unfettered power, which is those individuals who have sufficient status and influence and authority such that the rules and the boundaries that are put in place for all the right reasons are no longer applicable to them. They do not see these being um, relevant um, and they are one rule for one and one rule for themselves. Um, they don't even have to be the white collar psychopaths, do no, they? they? can still be at any levels. They can yep. still be what yep. appears to be functioning. Um, could be functioning alcoholics, yep. but functioning individuals. <laughs> yep. But they are just abusing power. Yeah, not just, but they are abusing yep. power. Yeah, okay. And that's one part of the, what I call the toxic triangle. So it doesn't yep. apply to them. It applies to everybody else. And yep. as soon as you start getting someone doing that, you should be alert. Absolutely. It's so a warning bell. It's, yes. And, the, and, and that, so that's one tip of my toxic triangle, which I look for in an organisation. So, so the tip is, what, what are the yeah. three parts? So the abuse of power is the, one, the first one. Yeah. The second part of the triangle is the um, victim mentality. Yeah. Which is the individuals in the organisation saying, what's the point of me saying anything? Yeah. Um, and I, I call it F squared. Yeah. Fear drives that thought process and the other F is any ideas 
Um, goodness. Um, fear. Futility. Oh, yes, futility. Yeah, yeah. F squared. Yeah. So what's the point? If yeah. I were to do it, that's me out. <laughs> May not be immediate, but I'll never get promoted. I'll never go down that program, yeah. whatever. So this mindset around, this is the way it goes around here. Yeah. And then the third one is permissive environment. So we don't have the controls in place to, to alert us to this. And I link this to vigilance. Organizations, and in particular humans within those, need to be much more vigilant about what they see, mm. what they hear, what they smell, what's going on. Because actually, if we allow it to become the norm, mm. and this toxic, because it becomes viral, it becomes infectious, and it's the combination, this implosion of these three points of the triangle mm. become an organisational full of fear, anxiety and pain. God, and, and you've just triggered for me um, the quote from Barack Obama, change will not happen if we wait for some other person or some other time. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the change we seek. So you need people to actually stand up and challenge uh, unhealthy, toxic behaviour. Call it out, whistleblow it. There's loads of research out there, Jonathan, and you know I can't remember the stats straight to my head, but over 50% of people within organisations suffer some form of bullying or harassment mm. or discrimination. It's, I think it's something like 63 or 64% wow. recent research. Now, for me, what's the 37% doing mm. <laughs> who are bystanders, who are witnesses, yeah. who are observers, yeah. and by default are colluding? Yes. And, and by this not is, saying anything. And this is where Margaret Heffernan's book, uh, Willful Blindness, yeah. and also her recent... Uh, the new one, Uncharted. Dare to disagree. I don't know what it's going. Yeah. Uncharted is what it's called. Yeah. This, this point about if you don't do something about it, you are colluding, you're a bystander, yeah. and you're letting it go on. You're complicit. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're very much complicit. So, so what are the other warning signs? So we, we talked about power and when the unfettered power and someone's not being stuck. What else should we be watching for? So those are the three things which are the, the kind of headline things which I look at. And actually underneath that, there will be a number of what I would call red flags. Okay. <laughs> so I would give look... Some red flags. Yes, I'll give, so I'll give an example around what are the mechanisms, what are the, some of the channels which people can escalate their concerns. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, how easy is it for people to actually raise a challenge um, to question authority? Hmm. Um, do they have to go through formalised channels? Does it become very... Um, disciplinary and very rigorous and very intimidating mm. or is it something where it's quite easy to do mm. actually do you know what? I can go and talk to somebody confidentially uh, I don't I, have to necessarily make a big song and dance out yeah. of it uh, and I've seen this on Glassdoor I don't know whether you, you yep. um, study it much but it's interesting different companies some get some real praise on Glassdoor yeah some get some of their employees who give the CEO and the the organization they say it's not a psychologically safe and, yep. and that's a, a very interesting. I'm reading the book, The Fearless Organization, oh, yes. yeah. by the, the Harvard um, professor, and she's very interesting. Um, th this whole idea that if it isn't psychologically safe, they, they won't share their ideas, yeah. they won't innovate because they get crushed, they, get, yeah. they learn, they watch and they just get destroyed and they go, I'm not going to do that. Yep. I saw what's happened to them. I remember when it's I worked... fear and futility coming yeah, in. Yeah, I remember when yeah. I worked for a uh, commanding officer who was a real... Um, he loved his uh, abuse of power and uh, did a few things that I just thought were corrupt. Um, and he destroyed us as the next layer down, the company commanders, mm. because he didn't want us to challenge him. And uh, you watched another company commander get shredded and you thought, oh, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. 
So people just sort of uh, hid in their caves yeah. and, and, and played a smaller game. Yeah. And uh, where, where could you go? I, 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 in my particular point, uh, I complained to the brigade commander when I had the chance to speak to him. And I got a black mark on my report, which is why I didn't get promoted at first or second opportunity. Probably also because I wasn't very good. But it, it's, it's looking back, I've read my, since yeah. leaving the army, read my reports and saw how I just got, I just got stabbed yeah, got for speaking out yeah. uh, in a system that supports the authority figure, yeah. not the junior who's calling out bad behaviour. But to put a positive spin on that, Jonathan, your ability to learn vicariously was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because uh, you were able to. What, and and I this wouldn't is what, be doing. Yeah. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now yeah. had yeah. I not learnt from that. But yeah. I, I think it's made me particularly a champion for the kind of work that you do, which I do in, in um, intelligent ethics. Because I do really encourage you in what you're doing, because we have to speak out, mm -hmm. and and that's why books like uh, Snakes in Suits, when psychopaths go to work. Yeah. I, I'm a particular psychopath hunter because <laughs> I, I really find it so offensive uh, in organizations when individual men or women are making lives horrible for yeah. other people. And, and you've seen, what have you seen? Give us some examples of the kind of things you've seen people do yeah. in organizations. I mean, one of the biggest things that really stuck home for me is where I've seen um, the la a lack of humanity mm. um, in times of acute pressure. Yeah. So um, I recall a story whereby we were working late one night um, and um, somebody shared this story which was they'd been in a project and it wasn't the place I was working with at the time and um, about 11, they were doing an all-nighter effectively, big yeah. deadline and at about 11pm at night the uh, team leader stood up and said um, I'm really sorry guys I'm going to have to leave you, I can't stay any longer. Uh, my wife's been in labour for four hours. What? Goodness me. I'm just shocked. True story. Yeah, I'm just shocked. Wow. I mean, the, the ramifications, the implications of that as a leader, as a role model, and he felt that actually he needed to be at work. That was a more important place for him. Then at his wife's side uh, at that point. And he'd sat there for four hours and been there. And it was absolutely incredible and not one single member of that team stayed in that firm um, for, uh, after a year they'd all gone they'd all left yeah no surprise and <laughs> we we've um one of the other um leaders who was speaking on this um said uh, she was talking about um being the leader of her team and uh, late one evening um it was uh, annette barnes she was telling the story that uh, when she was a junior leader and she went on to be a ceo of the um Lloyd's private bank and so a very talented individual and she's a Ned to about three different organizations now but she said her team came to her and they were working at 10 o'clock yeah. and she was there too working hard and they went Annette it's great working for you because we know that if we miss something you'll pick it up and she went oh boy I've yeah, got this so I got wrong this so, yeah. you know I should, I should empower and delegate and yeah. also not, not um, again it was the thing Catherine Baird said uh, from Emirates two things most important humanity and humility mm. Okay, as, as we're coming towards the end of our time, what, what, what other top tips would you share to get more ethical, healthy organisations that people are working in? Because we can talk about the bad things, but what can we do to make them healthier and more psychologically safe? Yeah. My biggest bit of encouragement would be about how we reframe humanity in the workplace. Mm. Um, it historically is seen as a vulnerability. Mm. It's not seen as a leadership hero trait. 
And I think we have to reposition and accept that actually the paradox is that in order to be the most effective leader that we can be, we have to be ourselves, flaws and all. So nobody is perfect, but our ability to show that vulnerability in an authentic way that is aligned to a genuine sense of not only what we're doing, but why we're doing it, that would be, you know, and it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. No, I think somebody once said to me, and I, I often... Uh, remind myself and others of it that only the strong can be vulnerable and 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 actually the moments when I've talked about uh, some difficult times in my life uh, whether it be a mental health challenge or or a physical health challenge with a cancer scare or whatever it might be people go oh that's a bit open of him you know you're very open as in that was a bit silly no actually I think it's not if done in the appropriate way not for sensationalism Mm or poor me, or I'm a victim, because mm. I don't see myself a victim. I, I see myself as a survivor from many challenges. And you clearly are, you know, with the situation you're going through with continuing to look after your mm. husband and, and all that's gone on. Thank you, that's really powerful. So in, in the, the final uh, stages, what would be a couple of your favorite top tips, others that you, we haven't talked about, that, um, to help people uh, survive? and lead well in difficult situations with difficult people. Yeah. Um, I think one, be kind to yourself. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we are far too hard and we need to be, you know, look after ourselves. Mm. Let's nurture, let's care for each other. And actually that compassion can go such a long way. And if you don't look after yourself, no one else will. So that would be my top of of my final two tips. The second one would be, we're in this for the marathon. It's not a sprint. (laughs) So let's slow down a bit. Yeah. Let's pace ourselves and enjoy the ride. Yeah. No blue bottle banging against the wall, uh, against the window too often. Tracy, I've really enjoyed uh, your insights and um, your honesty and openness, and you've modelled what you talked about. So I wish you every success um, with Intelligent Ethics. I think people will um, uh, enjoy having you there challenging, supporting, and and, uh, doing the work you do. But also, you know, wish you success with looking after your husband. And thank you for being your son. Thank you, Jonathan. So, now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.